0: Jesus had spent three years of his life fulfilling the ministry God had sent him to the earth to complete. He performed miracles for needy people. He taught sermons to people that would listen. He gave object lessons, and he shared parables with them while on earth. But his time on earth came to a close as he approached Jerusalem one year for the Passover. In John's gospel, he tells us that Jesus spent an evening with his disciples in that upper room, giving them some final words and and final time with them. Then he travels across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he spends a night there in prayer. But 600 soldiers show up and arrest him and take him into custody. He then endured three trials under the Jewish leaders, first under the Jewish leader Annas, another trial under Caiaphas, and then before the 70 member Sanhedrin group of elders. After those three Jewish trials, he then endured three more trials under the Romans, under Pilate, then to Herod, and then back to Pilate. And at that point, he was sentenced to die. He was sent to the cross to die. And as those trials occurred and Jesus walked to the cross and went to the cross and was hung there, there were various witnesses, various people that saw that occurring. that got to watch it with their own eyes. And as we reflect on that event today, there are three people or six eyes that we can observe what occurred through. Six eyes of specific people that saw Jesus on that day that went to the cross. And the first two eyes are the eyes of Jesus. We see humiliation from the eyes of Jesus as he went to the cross that day. Now, the Bible was written in a time of what was called honor-shame culture, where if you live in a small town, for example, Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth. About 200 people lived there. And there's a strong honor-shame culture. Everybody knows each other. Everyone knows who's doing good, who's doing bad. You didn't want to bring shame to your family in any way. And for those of us that maybe grew up in a really small town, we get that honor-shame culture. I grew up in a town of a couple thousand people with no stoplights. Everybody kind of knew everybody. When I was in school, there were certain friends, and we kind of knew, and kids at school, we knew whose dad was a deadbeat and didn't work. We knew whose mom did drugs. You know, we had, there's this honor-shame that occurred, and it was strong then in ancient culture. And in that honor-shame culture, Jesus endured seven different acts of shame on his way to the cross. Seven things that humiliated him that Friday. And the first piece of shame that Jesus had to endure is when he had to carry his own cross. John tells us in chapter 19, or chapter 19, verse 17, after those trials have occurred, it says, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. The first piece of shame that Jesus endures is physical pain and shame. Now, it was custom at that time for a prisoner to have to carry their own cross to the area. And what he's carrying here was the patabulum, that horizontal crossbeam that went at the top of the cross. It was about six feet wide and weighed as much as 125 pounds. And that's what he had to carry to what we read about is called the place of the skull. Either it looked like a skull, which is why they called it that, or perhaps they called it the place of the skull because there were many skulls that had accumulated at that location from deaths of other people. And while that pain and shame that Jesus endures here is physical, most of the pain and shame he endures is going to be emotional. The second point of humiliation for Jesus is that he is on the cross with others criminals. In verse 18, it says, there they crucified Jesus, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. This second piece of shame that Jesus endures, this second humiliation that he endures, is a community shame. Now, John doesn't describe a lot of the specifics of crucifixion because people at that time knew exactly what occurred. But he does describe these two other men that are with Jesus. Luke calls them criminals. Mark calls them robbers. And at that time in that society, kind of like others, we associate people based on who they associate themselves with. At that time, if you were in the gladiator games and with other slaves, we thought you were a slave. If you were in the nice parties with the nice people, they thought you were part of the the upper class. And the shame Jesus endures here is that he is in a community with criminals. One commentator said the Romans reserved crucifixion for slaves, deserters, revolutionaries, and the very worst criminals people they considered less than human. Jesus is in the worst company in society when he goes to the cross. But a third point of humiliation for Jesus is that he's put on the cross with a title. In verse 19, we read, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, This point of shame was literary. See, there'd be the Pataboam, which was that horizontal cross beam. Then there's the Stipes, was, was the vertical beam. But on top, they would put the Tatalus, which was a little placard, a little sign, and they would use white lettering and they would write the crimes of the person so that if someone didn't hear about why that person was on the cross, if they could read, they could read what was there and why the person was there. What a paradox here when Pilate describes him as a king. What an embarrassment this was supposed to be for Jesus. A king sits on a throne. A king's not hung on a cross. A king decides what other people will get as punishment. A king isn't punished by other people. But a fourth point of humiliation of Jesus is that he's put on the cross as an example for others. In verse 20 through 22, we read, Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This fourth point of humiliation of Jesus as an example is, again, a community humiliation. He writes that crime about Jesus in order to humiliate him. And the goal is to make Jesus an example of what will happen to other people if they claim to be a king. It was meant to keep other people from doing other things as wrong. Wrong. It was meant to be as public as possible. And we see that in the location in which they put Jesus on a cross, as well as the languages that they use. It says there they placed him near the city, especially during Passover with lots of people coming to the city. There's going to be a lot of people seeing this man on the cross, but also in the languages that they used says they used Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire, so most people, if they could speak, they spoke, or if they could read, they could read Latin. Hebrew was obviously the the language of the Jews and people that were religious in Jerusalem. And then Greek was the commercial trade commerce language. Anyone that was doing business could understand and read Greek. So anyone that could read a language would probably be able to read one of these three languages. Jesus is put on the cross as an example for others of what will happen when you make false claims. And Pilate's goal here is while maybe not everybody could hear Pilate's verdict, hopefully they could read Pilate's words about Jesus. A fourth point of humiliation of Jesus on the cross is that he is on the cross with no clothes. Starting in verse 23, we read, The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier. Also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. This humiliation that Jesus experiences is personal. Right? It was common for soldiers that were working, that was kind of part of the usual deal is if you were there observing the crucifixion, you got some of the spoils of the person being crucified. And in this case, there are four men and they decide to divide up the four pieces of Jesus's outer clothing. He probably had a turban, a pair of sandals, an outer garment, and then a girdle, kind of the outer wear. But also he had an inner part, a seamless one-piece girdle. So Jesus goes to the cross almost completely naked. Another sign of his humiliation, especially for Jews, because Jews wanted to be clothed and represented proper. On Sunday, when we read about Peter, he's out in the boat with the other disciples fishing, and it says he had stripped for work. And it says he saw Jesus. And what does he do? He puts on his clothes, and then he jumps in the water, which seems kind of weird. But in Jewish culture, you don't go greet somebody in your underwear. You want to put on your clothes and be representative. (laughs) And here Jesus has no clothes. Maybe one piece of clothing covering a small part of his body. A sixth point of Jesus' humiliation is that he is put on a cross in front of his own family. In verse 25, Kind of in the middle of verse 25, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. This point of humiliation is a family shame that Jesus experiences when his family is there watching him be put on a cross. And there are four people there, his mother, Mary, that we read about, the woman, Mary of Cleopas, we don't know much about her. And then there's Mary Magdalene that we know from the gospel of Mark and Luke that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her and that she was extremely loyal to Jesus. And in the next verse, we'll read about John the disciple is there also. And while Jesus probably didn't care what these four soldiers watching him thought about him on the cross, any respectable human would feel embarrassed and shameful when they are put to death in front of their own family. I wonder what Jesus maybe was thinking and considering about his family there. Was he worried about his mom? Was he worried about the disciple? Was he worried about Mary? Did his mom feel like she had failed as a mother because her son is on a cross? Did Mary Magdalene have fears that maybe her seven demons would return if Jesus is killed? Did John the disciple wonder if he had wasted his three years of his life following Jesus? That sixth point of humiliation Jesus experienced was family-based. And seventh, another piece of Shame that Jesus experiences on the cross is that he is unable to care for his mother. As it says in verses 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. The shame Jesus is experiencing is that he is not able to care for his mother like he is supposed to be doing. A lot of people believe that Joseph, Jesus' father, has died since he's not mentioned, and since Jesus is looking to John the disciple to take care of his mother. If you've ever had friends in an Asian culture or know people in an Asian culture, this is something they do really, really well. Younger generations of Asian adults usually have a strong sense of caring for their elderly parents and grandparents, and they make specific plans for how they will live with them and care for them as they get older. And that's the same obligation that occurred in Jewish families as well. But because Jesus is being put on a cross, he's unable to fulfill that obligation. And he's enduring the shame of failing of not taking care of his mother the humiliation and pain of Jesus. The pain of Jesus was as much emotional as it was physical. A lot of times we focus on the physical pain Jesus experienced, but forget about the feelings and emotions he must have experienced on the cross for us. Those are two eyes at the cross, Jesus's eyes. A second set of eyes was from another person that John has told us about a little bit earlier. But let's read a few more verses here, and then I'll return to those second set of eyes. In John 19, 28, John writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. John begins by telling us after this in verse 28. So there's a slight interval of time that occurs. And something we must always remember is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he went to the cross. He wasn't confused. He wasn't deceived. He wasn't dazed or anything like that. He knew the purpose that he was going to the cross. He was there to fulfill scripture. And while he's on the cross, he asked for a little drink of, of sour wine to help him. So they had a little stick with a sponge. They probably could give him some water. And with that, He breathes his last breath and says, I am finished, according to John's gospel here. Jesus knew what he had to do. And this last cry of Jesus in John's gospel where he says, it is finished. It's not the cry of a defeated person or someone that has given up or someone that is asking for mercy. It is a declaration of victory. That what he has gone to the cross and the life he has lived has been accomplished. And he says, It is finished. That phrase, It is finished, is a verb that John puts Jesus' words in here Tell us die. It is finished. And we've found papyrus tax receipts, and archaeologists have found documents that have this same verb written on them. It means paid in full, it means it is finished, it always has been, it always will be finished. In contemporary language, if an author writes a book and he completes it, he might say, it's finished. If a painter has been working on a canvas and comes to the end, she might say, the painting is done. If an employee has a big project at work, he might tell his boss, the project is completed. Or in Jesus' time, if someone was bringing their sacrifices to the temple, it was part of the job of priests to examine those animals, make sure they were perfect and spotless. And if they were, the priest would tell the person bringing the offering, "This this is sufficient, it's enough. Jesus was the perfect offering without any spot or blemish. He lived a perfect life and he served that perfect offering. Jesus' redemptive work has been completed, and the death of Jesus canceled the debt of sin. That's why when people ask us, what do I need to do to be saved? A part of our answer is usually not really much because the work has already been done. You just accept what's been done on your behalf by placing your faith in Jesus. The something that needs to be done is something that Jesus has already done. And Jesus knew he would die. But Barabbas, that guy that we read about in an earlier chapter of John, he didn't know the plan. If you're familiar with the gospel story, Barabbas was that wicked man. He was a robber. He was an insurrectionist. He was in prison awaiting to go to be killed. But as part of those trials with Pilate, Pilate goes to the crowd and talks to them and says, Jesus isn't guilty. And there's this back and forth interaction that's occurring. And there's something that occurs in our brain where if we hear our name, we usually can pick up that word out of a lot of commotion and noises. Have you ever, you ever noticed that? If you're at the grocery store and you hear your name, you kind of pop up, are they talking to me? If you're in another room working and someone's talking, but you hear your name, you think, are they talking about me? And I wonder if that's something that Barabbas experienced as Jesus's trials were occurring. Barabbas was in prison, locked up near Pilate and probably near Jesus. And as Bar- Barabbas is chained and And locked up, he probably heard his name at some point when Pilate went out to talk to the crowd. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Jesus is guilty. Should I release Jesus or Barabbas? And as Barabbas hears the subtle voices of Pilate and he hears his name, perhaps his attention perks up. Then the next thing he hears is, crucify him. Crucify him. As the crowd yells that back to Pilate. So some soldiers come to Barabbas, they come and they unshackle him and Barabbas must have thought, I am done. They open the doors to his cell and they release Barabbas not to walk to the cross, but to walk in freedom. That's the second set of eyes that watched Jesus and knew about Jesus, that Jesus was the substitute for Barabbas. Barabbas knew he should have been on the cross like Jesus, but Jesus went there in his place as his substitute. See, Jesus's death was an offer for everyone, no matter how good or how bad. And Barabbas is an example of Jesus' substitution for everyone. So we've looked at the cross through Jesus' eyes. We've seen the cross through the eyes of Barabbas. Humiliation from Jesus' eyes, substitution from Barabbas' eyes. But they're the eyes of us that look at Jesus on the cross. And what we experience is not humiliation, not substitution, but we experience reconciliation because of what Jesus has done. Reconciliation describes how God works on our behalf through Christ to restore our relationship with him. Because there is a need for the reconciliation of our sins that we commit against God. In the past five or ten years, there have been some popular books that have been released on gratitude. You maybe have seen or read or heard about "1,000 Gifts" by Anne Voskamp, is a cop, uh, popular one where she encourages people to, to write about gratitude and journal a thousand things they are grateful for. Or another one is called "Choosing Gratitude" by Nancy wolgemuth Demoss. Nancy Demos Wolgemuth. Choosing gratitude. While that's a good practice to create a gratitude list, and sometimes it's hard for us as we're struggling in life to think about things we are grateful for, there's a list we could create that we don't have to work hard on. That's a sin list, right? We can easily write down the sins that we have in our life. And that's why Jesus had to die. As Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God of God. That sin list is why Jesus had to die for you and for me. That's why he knowingly and willingly went to the cross for you and for me. And on the cross, he reconciled us back into a right relationship with God. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through faith, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Pilate didn't know it, but he wrote the first ever gospel tract, as he said, King of the Jews, and put it above the cross. The first gospel tract that we place our faith in the King of the universe. One person said the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus was the most blessed act of divine love and divine justice ever to occur. That's at the very heart of the Christian faith. One of the stores I like to sometimes go to is Staples, and I had a little extra time as I was working on this message before picking up my son at preschool. I was at Staples getting a few things for, for our church, and I was just killing time looking at things. And Twenty years ago, we used to have these things called ink pads. You Remember an ink pad and then a stamp? You'd stamp the ink pad, and then you'd stamp whatever you wanted. And if anyone in your building or even your block was using those things, you could almost feel it. Thump, 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 thump. They'd stamp the ink pad and they'd stamp the documents. Thump, 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 thump. And as I looked, there was one stamp that they still sell that stood out to me. It was four letters. P-A-I-D. Paid. And that's a reminder for us of what Jesus did on the cross, that he paid for our sins. He stamped out our sins with his blood when he died on the cross. Every mistake you've ever made, every mean word you've ever said, everything you've ever stolen from work, every lie you've ever told, Jesus stamped those sins through his blood on the cross, paid in full. And that's why we gather here today to remember what he did and to reflect on the impact that it has in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. That he knowingly and willingly died for us and in that act, he experienced excruciating physical pain, but also emotional pain and emotional shame in front of his family and and the community. But he did all of that so that we could have life through our faith in you. I pray for our church here. And if there's anyone that hasn't taken that step to place their faith in you, Lord, I pray the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would be convicting that person of their sins and and showing them and highlighting to them and illuminating in their heart how Jesus paid for them and their sins. I pray that you would lead them to place their faith in you today, Lord, because Jesus paid it all on the cross that day. He paid for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll invite you to stand for benediction, if you are able to stand, and will be dismissed. <clears throat> May the God of heaven grant you peace and security as you reflect on and remember the sacrifice of his son for your sins today. Amen.